You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we ask the bigger questions about work. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show, and this is episode 100, part three. We're going to focus in this part of episode 100 on happiness and success, and you're going to hear from a whole bunch of people some of the most interesting conversations I've had over the last few years on the podcast about how different people define happiness and success, which I think is just such an interesting topic to me. I'm often asked, you know, what do all these high achievers that you've had on the podcast, what do they have in common? And often my answer is, well, there's nothing in common apart from humans are weird. And so I think the things that motivate people and the way people motivate themselves is just an endlessly fascinating uh, topic for conversation. And we're going to hear from in this episode, amongst others, one of the world's leading experts on negotiation, an Olympic double gold medalist, a couple of very successful entrepreneurs, one of my favorite comedians, and someone who literally very publicly had it all and then lost it all in a day. So lots coming up on this episode. And we're going to start with one of my favorite episodes, actually, Ben and Jody Cook. So Ben and Jody Cook are people that I didn't know before I did the podcast. I was introduced to them by a mutual friend of ours, Rob Garrity, who said, hey, you should interview these guys. They'd make really good podcasts. So I did, and we really got on well. We've got a lot in common. Um, so they're based in Birmingham, where I used to live, and I often uh, you know, call Birmingham the soul of the universe. Ben is an Aston Villa fan, so we have that in common as well, obviously. Um, but yeah, and Jody, I, I particularly keep in touch with a lot, um, and she's become a really good friend because she's a really prolific business book author. So last year she released a couple of books, one called Instagram Rules, which is um, the, all the sort of wisdom from their social media agency. So they run this social media agency together called JC Social Media and they've distilled all of their wisdom around Instagram into a book called Instagram Rules. And Jody also, with Daniel Priestley last year, released a book called How to Raise Entrepreneurial Kids, which really builds on the work that Ben and Jody have both done with a thing called Clever Tykes, which they're co-founders of, which is all about taking entrepreneurial stories into schools. Really interesting initiative. Uh, outside of that... Uh, they just have a really interesting take on work and life. So they're minimalists. They can fit all of the possessions that they own into a car. And they own a really small flat in the middle of Birmingham, which just allows them this flexibility to be able to go and travel. So most years they spend a good few months just living and working in just different cities and different countries around the world, just because that's, you know, just because they can. Um, Jodie is also a champion British powerlifter. Ben is her coach. And they're also massive foodies, as you're going to hear. So Birmingham over the last few years has had a really interesting food scene with a lot of Michelin stars coming the way of Birmingham. I think it's got the most Michelin stars of anywhere outside London in the UK. So um, you're going to hear a bit about their, their penchant for good food in this little clip as well. But basically, we're talking about how they define happiness and success for themselves and how they set goals. It's got a lot going for it. There's new things opening there all the time. Well, for, for both of us, both of our families live there as well, so it's nice being really close to them. A lot of our friends live in London, and although I really like visiting, I just never fancied actually living in yeah, London. Yeah. So, yeah, Brom's good. We live in, in, the, in the city centre right by the Jewelry Quarter and just walk everywhere, really. Yeah. The whole goal is to get the gym-home-work triangle to be as small as possible. <laughs> and so our triangle is less than a mile. 
Okay, which is perfect. Cool. So although we have a car, we just don't use it that much, apart from to go further. We don't really use it around Brum. Uh, ben, you're a fellow long-suffering Aston Villa fan. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, yes, um, that was absolutely a blow to the city, uh, I think, that Villa getting, getting relegated this year. There's a blow to half the city, probably. Yeah, I feel the Blues fans were happier about Villa going down than how sad the Villa fans were about going down. I think it's been a long time coming. Um, but, I mean, Albion are still, are still doing it for the Midlands in the Premier League. Um, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, we won't talk for an hour about football um, but yeah absolutely I care what Jodie says it's, Birmingham is a fantastic place there's so much going on there's a lot of building work there um, it's a thriving economy for startup businesses particularly the tech scene as well um, and Birmingham has had a bad rap in the past and I think a lot of people imagine it as this place that it was in the 70s and 80s but so much has changed so much has been spent um, on the city uh, so much development and I'd implore anyone who's not visited the city recently to get get there and see it yeah and I saw it come up on uh, one of those like you know sort of BuzzFeed style like here are here are cool places to go and have a city break that you'd not thought of mm. and obviously having spent a lot of time there when I first saw that I was like oh that's kind of interesting and then I was like yeah actually like if you've never been there <laughs> Like, yeah. that's the perfect place to go for, like, a three-day city break, right? Like, and it, But I think a lot of people would just be like, what, Birmingham? That's kind of yeah, yeah. Definitely an odd thing. To, and maybe because it's in the middle as well, mm, like, just that mm. whole thing of just going to the middle for a break. You want to kind of go to the coast or on a plane or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Definitely, yeah. I mean, Birmingham's got other things to offer, hasn't it? Like the canal the canal network. The new library's a stunning bit of architecture. Um, and it is, it is such a culture-driven city as well. So much to see. And, and also the food. We can't forget that. I mean, the five Michelin stars now. Is it five? Five, okay. yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, Carters have mostly picked up uh, the fifth one for, for Birmingham, wow. um, which is, is incredible, really, um, seeing as other cities in, in the UK, like, like Manchester, don't have any. Yeah. Um, I think it's none when I live there actually which is only sort of 10 years ago I don't think there's a single mission star there's another restaurant in the jewelry quarter called Two Cats which maybe might get the sixth one (laughs) they're certainly going for it lining up the next few how do you get a mission star do you know well I don't actually know but (laughs) I think you have to be on the radar of the Michelin committee and then I think the way you the way you serve food and the things that are on your menu I think have to be fairly formulaic as in look at what other ones are doing and tasting menus seem to go down yeah. pretty well so just having a tasting menu in that movie. but are you, are you guys real foodies like yeah. you, so you go to not real foodies and we hardly ever cook our kitchen's tiny and right. we have we have two hobs in an oven that's also a microwave and just there's no space <laughs> and there's only space for one person in there but which we'll yeah. come on to we'll talk about that yeah, yeah but we're all about the travel train and eat and yeah. the eating is yeah. eating out and going to different Michelin style restaurants yeah. yeah yeah it's certainly an experience thing isn't it it's not just the food you don't you know the, pr- the price that you pay for some of these meals it's not the price for the, of the food you know yeah. it really is the experience so you have to see it as a lot more than, than just the meal I think we're quite quite kind of uh, set in our idea of what success means to us and obviously success means so many different things to different people and that's a good thing but then with social media you run the risk of wanting to have all the success that everyone's having all at the yeah. same time so being able to distinguish what's what you want and what's what you don't want as yeah, well. well people people do not share the tough times in their life the days that they're well some people do but generally people share achievements and great mm. things that they're doing and it's very easy to sit on social media and if you've got 500 friends on Facebook you are seeing several pretty 
pretty good achievements every single day and yeah. you think wow everyone else is having such a great time they're doing such amazing things and then you know some of your friends will be getting married or they'll have the keys to their first flat or they'll have a new BMW or they say I've just got this promotion I've just got this raise and I think it's very easy to let other people's idea of success influence yours mm. and if you're being dragged along by oh they've got a BMW I need a BMW you're letting other people's definitions guide what you're, what you're doing and I, and I think that's why it's important to do the exercises where you're looking at what do I want to do more what, of, what do I want to do less of and see what happiness actually means to you have really worked on our lifestyle to the point that we really enjoy it um, we have kind of got a flat exactly where we need it to be that we, we can walk to our gym we can walk to work and we can go and remote work you know anywhere in the world for, for a month so it's not necessarily that we're trying to to change anything at the moment so uh, it's great to say we've achieved all our goals but we're not certainly not quite there but we're we're very we're very close to to what what we want to do mm. each each year there's like a kind of you know that amazing time in the middle of Christmas and New Year when yeah it's just yeah. like actual guilt-free holiday yeah. so um there's usually when we kind of go to a coffee shop or something and then and then write down like what have we achieved this year what do we want to achieve next year and so I've got that going back to 2011 I think mm-hmm. of every year like what was the goal did we reach it what is it next year and then all those mm-hmm. in a row because that's quite cool like just at yeah. the end of the year being like right what's next year what's hold- next year got to hold you've just made me realise that because I do something very similar around that time of year but I never look back okay. and so I never give myself that sort of yes I achieved that or yeah, okay. you know I didn't yeah. and then why yeah. and, you know, I and do the, the why is important you know. because I do the reflection on a weekly basis but I don't do it on that bigger yeah. sort of year basis that's interesting and the why is really important because in a yeah. Jan- in January you might say you want to do a certain thing and then at the end it's like well actually I didn't even want to do that anymore so I haven't achieved it but it's fine because my mm. priorities have changed and then something I did the other day after I read a book called You Are the Placebo and it's all about when you say things or think things and your mind can't distinguish between it actually happening and you saying it about something that's actually happened or about you saying it about something that hasn't happened so I wrote my bio as in my kind of elevator pitch for when I'm 30 so two like two and a half years time it was hello I'm Jodie Cook this is my 30th birthday I am and it was the kind of how I want to describe myself then Mm. based on certain things kind of achieved by then and then you got that feeling in your head and then it's like ah this is so this is so close this could actually happen yeah and that helps align all the what goals oh, I couldn't possibly tell you all the <laughs> it's quite big though like it's quite big it's quite out there as in what I want to achieve with all the different projects but it's more yeah it's not necessarily even for publication it's more like just to to revisit every now and again yeah why would you not publish it why, why, or why would why would you not share it don't know. Yes, it's just not. It's just not for that purpose. It probably sounds. It probably sounds really egotistical. Yeah, it probably does. And when you haven't achieved it yet, I mean, because of course there's going to be goals with with the business side. There's certainly the goals of getting the national package with clever types. But yeah. it, sometimes it's quite dangerous to even to even put that on paper because goals and targets are the, the ones that are written down are the ones that you want to achieve. And and sometimes you may not even go about achieving them in the right way. And what I mean by that is that I think. If we can all focus, especially especially business people who are working on self-improvement, if we actually improve ourselves as managers, being more productive, being more mindful, as a result of that, as a byproduct of that, we will be better achievers in our mm-hmm. in our in our in our businesses. And I was talking to Jodie recently about this as well. There's the, the a lot of entrepreneurs say, you know, I'm a great entrepreneur because I'm never satisfied, and they're always driven to do more. But if you're never satisfied, are you ever happy? 
Are you just driving to do more, to make more money? So really, you have to learn to be happy with the existing situation, but not so happy that you don't work. So being happy and then improving oneself by various means, reading a lot of you know, self-improvement books, that should help achieve your business goal without actually writing down your business goals in terms of you know, monetary terms for or whatever. Yeah. There's something really interesting, the dynamic of that. So there you go. Why meet the Queen when you can change your goals and just eat scones instead? And that feels like a very good metaphor for work and life and a really good way to start the podcast. So from a couple of really inspiring Brummies, we're going to go to Toronto, Canada and double Olympian Heather Moyes. So Heather is a double Olympic gold medalist in bobsleigh. And this conversation was in Toronto in the Royal York Hotel. She's from Prince Edward Island, um, PEI, as it's affectionately known to Canadians. And um, what's really interesting about this is we're talking about the the idea of goal setting and setting goals young and how a lot of people view Olympians as these kind of other people, these kind of exotic people that they could never be, you know, and this whole idea of, I have to, from the year dot, start eating four chickens a day and training at five in the morning and all that kind of thing. And Heather really debunks that in a very, very humble, but also very inspiring way. Um, so I'm I'm starting this conversation by asking Heather about how she got started and at what point did she realize she wanted to be an Olympian? And her answer really kind of surprised me. But yeah, I won't spoil it. Let's get into this clip. So here's my conversation in the Royal York Hotel in Toronto with Heather Moyes. Well, for me, it didn't happen until I was 27, but I didn't really, I didn't, I, I didn't grow up watching a lot of sports and I, my family just didn't watch a ton of sports on TV and I grew up just playing a whole bunch of different sports and I also grew up in a very small town um, and there weren't people around me training for the Olympics or training for, you know, to represent their country. So I didn't grow up kind of thinking that that's what I wanted to do. So it felt like quite a distant thing. Right. Olympians, those are TV people. Yeah. You know, those are TV people. They're not everyday normal people like I had always considered myself to be. And I just played sports the whole, like, just for fun. I just loved it. I didn't train for sports or start even lifting weights or doing any of that until I started bobsledding, which was when I was 27. So I just, even with all the varsity sports I played at university and all the sports in high school, like, I just... I just played because I enjoyed it and because it was social and it was fun and, and I always thought that if I actually trained for it and if I started lifting weights then it would become work and a job and I wouldn't enjoy it as much and so I just right. never did um, and I guess I never tried to get to another level because I just was enjoy like I just thought it would happen if you enjoy playing the level you're playing in you're, you'd automatically go for it if you were meant to but because I didn't have this far off goal, I wasn't trying to do anything. I mean, I didn't know that we even had a national women's rugby team until it was announced at a tournament that I was added to the long list of right. the national program. <laughs> and I was like, what program? And the person <laughs> sitting beside me, yeah. yeah, the person sitting beside me said, man, that's awesome, the national women's rugby team. And I was like, we have a national women's <laughs> rugby team? So it's, I guess for me, it was kind of a blessing to just be able to do it because I enjoyed it, which just happened to get me to the right places and do the right things. Because I think that 
one big problem is that a lot of people focus so much on achieving goals without yeah. without actually enjoying the process because all that matters is the goal as opposed to just choosing at each moment no this is I would not rather do anything else than this hmm. so that's interesting because I think a lot of people would say that you know to become a champion you have to have you have to have that goal you have to be really determined but like what you're saying there is that it's the it's almost like the process of it and lo- you've got to love the process you've got to love the journey along the way rather than I just I know it just sounds so goal, cliche right? enjoy the journey but I think that I think it's important when you put it in perspective so when I talk to kids or students and even parents of kids who are in sports um, I just I have this kind of personal motto about no regrets and so when you start trying to figure out decisions between continuing to pursue something or pursuing something else that you've always kind of had in the back of your mind how do you how do you choose and they're like well I've always wanted to go to the Olympics so but you have to make those decisions based on the worst case scenario of if you choose that path over something else so for example I spoke to a young boy probably university um, and he was kind of on the path to going to the Olympics um, on a field hockey team and he had said that he always wanted to work, do development work in India, where his whole family was from and right. wanted to go and help out there. But he was worried because he's going through this development, all these development programs of, like he's on the junior national team, which means next step would hopefully be the senior national team for the Olympic team and, and that sort of thing. And I just kind of said, well, if you continue for the next four years going towards the Olympic cycle and that Olympic year suddenly someone comes out of nowhere and is better than you and takes your mm, spot in your position and are you yeah. willing to regret deciding that over going overseas or okay. are you or if someone or if you break your ankle three months out or two months out right. before the Olympics are you going to regret the decision of having pursued that and if you actually every year chose no this is what I want to be doing over anything else then that's where you're supposed to be but if you've got kind of these regrets and if you chose to go overseas and you come back and you don't make the team well you might not have made it even if you had stayed Mm. but if you go away and you really want that spot you will still train wherever you are to the point where when you come back you'll be the best shape you can be you'll be as ready as you possibly can be and then it yeah it's up to you know I, it's just it's just crazy I think people just need to start making decisions based on you know worst case scenario having no regrets on kind of what they've chosen so there you go Heather Moyes in Toronto at the Royal York Hotel and a funny little story which was a nice piece of learning for me was I was kind of halfway through that episode and I realized that a there was a lot of background noise we were in this hotel and we were kind of in the quietest corner of the quietest restaurant that we could find but it was still really noisy and there's all these kind of plates being chinked and stuff which you know can be quite nice as a kind of sound aesthetic if that's a a way to describe it but also can be quite off-putting so I was kind of worried about that and then also I noticed that the microphone that Heather was using which was like a clip-on mic was rubbing uh, against the necklace that she had on as well and I think because it was like one of my first podcasts and I was a bit intimidated and I was kind of in the moment with my questions and stuff, I just sort of chose in that moment to just ignore it. And what I've learned looking back is that if ever you're sort of worried about the technical stuff, 
if ever you're worried about um you know something that you think might be catastrophic later on you've just got to kind of break that moment and just fix it and so that's kind of what i do now that was a really good moment of learning for me in terms of just becoming a better podcaster is just kind of you know noticing that some of those uh, small things can become really big things and you've got to just nip them in the bud so there you go that was uh, heather moyes uh, also uh, worth saying that a couple of years after we recorded that she messaged me saying um hey graham i'm coming over to the uk i'm going to this little town called rugby because it's the home of rugby football and she was being inducted into the Rugby Hall of Fame, which is in rugby. And I'm from rugby, so I actually put her in touch with my dad. And my dad is something of a kind of... He's lived in rugby all his life and is something of an expert on the town and uh, its history and so on. And uh, at that point was um, working at a hotel. So has access to all of the kind of rugby tourist information and all that sort of stuff. But to be honest, all of the tourist information is really about the sport anyway. <laughs> but basically, he gave her loads of good background information. And I, I couldn't get there to say hi. But um, uh, by all accounts, she had a good visit to rugby and to the UK. But there you go. Um, so we're going to move on and uh, talk to Gerald Ratner. So if you're of a certain age you will have heard of the phrase doing a Ratner. Uh, Gerald Ratner was one of the most famous entrepreneurs in the UK, particularly in the kind of Thatcher era uh, of the sort of mid to late 80s. And it all came crashing down for him on the 23rd of April, 1991. He made a very famous speech about Ratner's, his jewellery company. Um, and he told a couple of jokes that were designed to be self-deprecating but they were basically slights on his own product range so one of the jokes was we also do cut class sherry decanters complete with six glasses on a silver plated tray that your butler can serve drinks on all for four pounds 95 people say how can you sell this for such a low price and i say well because it's total crap and he sort of told another joke. It's not actually that funny, is it, the joke? But, uh, he also uh, told another joke, which was um, talking about a set of earrings and said it was cheaper than, than a Marks and Spencer prawn sandwich and probably won't last as long. And these two jokes got really out of hand. They ended up on the front page of every tabloid newspaper the next morning. And his whole world came crashing down. The value of the company plummeted by 500 million just overnight. It nearly collapsed. It had to change its name. He was then booted out a year or so later. So literally in like 18 months, he'd gone from, you know, complete hero, making the speech, by the way, at the Institute of Directors at the Royal Albert Hall. And that speech the year before had been done by Damon Eater Roddick. It was kind of like the speech that every entrepreneur wants to give. It's like the keynote address and they pick one prominent business person per year. So he literally went from like hero to zero pretty much overnight and had been on this kind of meteoric rise in the years preceding that. So he was actually one of the first names. When I first had the idea of doing the podcast, one of the first people I wrote down was Gerald Ratner. And I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating to talk to someone who has you know had it all had this huge rise and then lost everything and you know and then had to rebuild um his book is really interesting so i i really enjoyed his book and uh, yeah the book is called the rise and fall and rise again and it talks about what he did afterwards as well as obviously um in depth talking about that speech so afterwards he sort of went on to 
uh, found a couple of different companies and he uh, created a, a sort of health club in Henley on Thames, which he sold for uh, nearly four million pounds in 2001. So, you know, he made some money after losing everything and um, was in a good place. But, you know, the other thing about his book is that I, I have to say I read the book and a lot of what I read in the book I really related to, but there was a sort of style to it and a, a, and the way that it was written seemed quite braggy and quite sort of ego-driven and quite bravado-y. And I sort of fully expected to not like him when I went to interview him, which I have to say is probably the only time that's ever happened. I was like, oh, this guy's going to be quite annoying. I think, you know, maybe I'm not the right person to get the best out of him and so on. And actually, we really connected. I found him just super present and in the moment and there was just a real zen to him which uh was was just really interesting and also the thing about him was that you could tell that he had totally made peace with the situation and what happened but also there was still some pain there and it was interesting that i i felt like both of those things were true so i just i love this conversation a uh, funny little story as well is uh we were arranging it by email and he said, hey, uh, meet me at Claridge's at like 10 o'clock or whatever the time was. And so we met at Claridge's and there was me thinking, oh, man, you know, th this guy may, may have had a sort of rise and fall story, but he's also a successful businessman. So he's going to be known by all the people at Claridge's. He's going to have a, a room booked there or whatever. And we arrived at Claridge's. He sat in the reception and he's like, right, let's go to Starbucks around the corner. So we ended up like we were sat outside because it was quite a, a warm day. And so, again, there's um, quite a bit of sort of traffic noise and stuff going on in the background, which I think kind of adds to uh, the whole conversation. But we literally just sat outside in the Starbucks around the corner from Claridge's and just that in itself felt like a really uh, interesting sort of embodiment of Gerald Ratner's story. But yeah, let's get into the episode. We talk, of course, about his uh, very public fall from grace, but we talk about a lot of other stuff as well. It's a really good full episode to go and check out. But yeah, let's uh, join it with uh, me and Gerald Ratner sat in a Starbucks. <laughs> Something that really stood out was just the, I mean, the, and the period that you were uh, operating Ratners in, and yes. you know, you, so you you took over your uh, father's business, and uh, the period that you were operating that in, in you know, particularly in the 1980s, where yeah. there was just a lot of money around, it was yes. high growth, um, a just real period of success economically, both yes. in the country and for you. And we had Mrs. Thatcher um, and Thatcherism and all yeah. those things. It, it feels like it's. Um, uh, just you know the story of that rise just feels yes. really exciting as you yes as, as, as you read your book so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about ambition yes um, one thing that uh, really struck me from the book was um, your snooker companions yeah uh, so the the three as of soon you as you said ambition actually my mind thought of snooker and then you oh, said really? snooker. that's okay. incredible <laughs> that you said that because as soon as you said ambition yeah that was what spurred me on yeah i mean it comes across really strongly in the book um so you're two you can explain who your two snooker yes. companions are michael green who was then the chairman of carlton tv which is itv at the time um was carlton communications it was called who was very successful and young my age which was in the, in our late 30s i suppose and Charles Saatchi, uh, who ran Saatchi and Saatchi, world's largest advertising agency. And Charles didn't sort of mince words. He was very direct right. in everything that he said. Um, he didn't uh, sort of 
procrastinate very much. He was very direct, but I learned more from him than anybody else. Mm. Amazingly bright and intelligent man. Yeah. Did it feel? Did it ever feel? Odd to you or strange to you that the three of you playing snooker were all on very high octane career trajectories, and you know you were well. You were I wasn't. Friends, I wasn't at first, and that was what was bugging me. Yeah, yeah. And I kept sitting at home at night and saying, "Well, I want to be achieve what they've achieved, uh, making a lot of money, running a public company, shares going up, being in the public eye, being very successful." And those two were ahead of me, so. I kept thinking, how can I do this? Because、yeah. I was in this business with my father that, quite frankly, was going nowhere,、uh, or it was a public company. The sales figures were disastrous, hardly making any profit. And then H. Samuel, our main competitor, bought twenty percent of us, and then that was when really the writing was on the wall. I thought, you know, but there still was my best vehicle、yeah. for success. However. Drab the jewellery trade was at the time, and however, sort of everybody said that it's never going to be an, like a TV or an advertising company. Yeah, there's something really nice about that it being a, a defining moment in terms of、uh, that mistake, and then also then a defining moment in terms of a new opportunity and the the rise again. Yeah, and、uh, also what it also did, in speaking, it made me laugh about it. Yeah, everybody laughed about yeah. it. Yeah. In fact, they played a clip of it when I did the actor thing, and I thought,、oh, "How dare they play that <laughs> clip?" And then I thought about it, and I now play that clip for every speech、mm. I do, which is my three jokes in inverted commas at the airport. So, who would believe that I would voluntarily、yeah. play this this thing that I was trying to pretend never existed?、Um, And I now play the clip. So, actually, you know, if I come to terms with it, if you laugh about it, like everybody, if you can't, if you can't beat and join them, and that's、yeah. what I did in the end. And you said quite near the beginning of this conversation about you were talking about ego, and you know, let's face it, yes, all of this is about ego. So, was that a moment where you realised that you know, being able to do that is a detachment of ego in some way, or you, you sort of treat your ego quite differently? It was a bit still. There was still a bit of the old Gerald left in me, and the fact that I was still, after hibernating in my bed for seven years, I'm coming out into the public, realising that people still knew who the hell I was.、Mm. Uh, they certainly did. Everyone in there, and they were really excited that I was speaking there. Made me realise that even though I'd lost my job, and the press, had, the, the general public hadn't forgotten about me. Yeah.、Um, that there was still something in the brand rats, which now sounds very strange, considering that it's got this massive stigma attached to it.、Um, that the fact that there is some truth in the saying that no publicity is bad publicity, because there still was a. a The fact that I was known opened doors for me,、yeah. even though I was known for the wrong reason. Yeah. So、um, I realised at that point that there was a silver lining in all of this, which I didn't, I was unaware of before、mm. that. Interesting. There's always a silver lining in everything, I guess. Yeah, and I, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this will just find that really inspiring. You know,、yeah. that sense of coming back from such a difficult position, and、uh, you, I think. Whilst a lot of people in the press love a 
a sort of rise and fall story, a rise and fall and then a rise again is, is uh, yeah, you know, even more attractive as a story, yeah. right? People are attracted to somebody who gets knocked down and comes back. Mm. But if you still stay down there, it's a bit cruel, they'll just kick you. Yeah. So you have to get up. The rise and fall and rise again of Gerald Ratner there. So one of the subtexts of happiness and success is often money. And I'm going to talk now to Natalie Reynolds. Natalie is one of the world's leading experts on negotiation. She advises a whole range of companies around the world on how to get a better deal. And she's also the author of a book called We Have a Deal. Not to be confused, of course, with the art of the deal. There you go. Um, but Natalie's also a friend of mine. And I think that really helped to allow her to open up in this conversation and just kind of almost like forget the microphones are there and it feels like money is for a lot of people including for me it's uh, a very kind of touchy subject uh, Natalie and I as you'll hear in this clip both share um, that kind of sense of money being an unstable thing through childhood and I think that really uh, then impacts how you think about success and how you think about money and your relationship to it um, throughout the rest of your life and it's certainly something that I've spent quite a bit of time uh, being coached around and I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm working on it in terms of my own relationship with it but it's a really vulnerable conversation for a lot of people to have and almost like a taboo subject and I think the fact that I know Natalie quite well really just helped us to to have this conversation on such a taboo topic and it was one of those things that we kind of stumbled in I wasn't really expecting to be talking about money and it was just a little throwaway comment that she made and I just kind of seized on it and uh, it went from there so here's me and Natalie Reynolds talking about money and like the complete pro she is she manages to bring it back to a really good tip for negotiating as well so here we go here's my conversation with Natalie Reynolds <laughs> But I had a wonderful career for around 12 years working in and around local and central government and did lots of things in that time from development of legislation around antisocial behaviour, uh, advising the Mayor of London on rape, sexual assault, domestic violence, managing large enforcement teams. And I loved my time in public service, but started to crave a change around the time I went to night school to become a barrister. So I yeah. qualified as a barrister um, on a part-time basis. And I start, that was when I started to realise that negotiation was a skill that a lot of people despised and hated and would avoid. Um, I then went to a now competitor, they headhunted me, and I spent three really great years travelling the world training very senior level executives in how to negotiate. Yeah. And I, I really, really loved my job. And, and I think actually the catalyst for me doing what I do now actually happened there rather than when I went, to, because I went from there onto a FTSE 100. Um, as a commercial director but it was whilst I was at um, my now competitor that I that I realized that actually people were interested in the in the people side of things you know mm. negotiation isn't just a process yeah. it's about how we interact with each other it's about what motivates people to behave the way they do to each other and and that was when I got a real interest particularly in gender and unconscious bias and it was that firm's reluctance to do anything with that that really made me question their way of doing things and I was just like do you know what I, I think there's another way so it's that classic kind of entrepreneurial thing of there's something I can see that's broken yeah and I know how to fix it and you know it's like I've got to go and do that is absolutely and 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 you know it's it, 
for me, it, it burnt, it started a fire in me that made me think, I think there's another way, mm. and I'd like that way to look quite different. And so um, I, I left there, um, I went on to, to work at FTSE 100, did it for a time, but realised my heart lay in doing what I'm doing now, yeah. and so took the leap. And um, what do you miss about being an employee? Security. Um, my my upbringing was uh, one where you know we, finan- financially we were quite unstable. My parents divorced when I was quite young. Uh, we never had a lot of money. It was always yeah. kind of touch and go every month, and I, that's been my biggest barrier. I have a very strange relationship with money. Um, I'm not very good with it. Mm. Um, I I love it yet I'm scared of it, and and I, I have a lot of barriers personally. I think to overcome around that. But can, we get, can we get into that? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, part of Beyond Busy is about exploring the taboos. Money is such a taboo, right? Oh. Like people just don't want to talk about it. Mm. Uh, so let's talk about it. So uh, <laughs> you have a strange relationship with it. like, And I really I empathise with that totally in terms of that sort of growing up, being conscious of, you know, parental mm. security and the security when it comes to money is the, the story I tell myself. But like, so tell me how you from having that view of money uh then get into the let's become an entrepreneur and and screw the security and let's just do it i in a way i, I still don't think i've reconciled it because i mean mm. i i was um i've always been the main breadwinner in our house you know my husband and i met when he was working for me so i was his boss i've always earned more we've always been very comfortable with that in our house um put it this way the thing that held me back and prevented me from doing this sooner was that fear of not yeah. having a monthly paycheck i i you know if there's one thing i have nightmares about if there's one thing that keeps me up at night it's cash flow money what if and tell I, me about it I yeah. have all the same so i lay there going what if we don't win any more clients what yeah. if this happens and and when I wake up, it's I'm very rational again. Yeah. I, you may have heard the phrase "the hour of the wolf," yeah. which is yeah. the French concept for four in the morning, which is at four in the morning you're at your most vulnerable to your innermost fears. And I really suffer from that. I'm routinely laying wide awake at four o'clock in the morning, thinking, "What if? What if? What if?" And it's always about money. So I don't have an answer for it, but I I I know why I did it. I did it because. Even though I was earning very good money in my last role, I had security and I was on a nice notice period, nice pension, all of that kind of thing. I wasn't fulfilled. I mm. wasn't doing what I loved. And I'd had a glimpse of what I'm good at. And I knew, I knew that my idea about how to deliver negotiation training, the way I knew that negotiation could be taught, yeah. I, it was, that was so powerful that it overrode my fear. And I think also I've been very fortunate that I have a husband who's very pragmatic. Yeah. And his view was, if it doesn't work out, you'll get another job. You've never right. struggled. Yeah. You've never yeah. struggled getting a job before. And in fact, now you've got even better transferable skills. So why would that suddenly not be the case? Completely um, agree with that. And so actually having him as a safety net, and I probably don't tell him this enough, but having, having my husband's kind of affirmations like that has just made me realise that you know what, I'll, I'll be more frustrated if I don't do it. Mm. And, you know, I've just got to learn to live with that little niggly money fear that, yeah, that I will yeah, always yeah. have, probably. Yeah. And I was going to ask, I was actually, just before you mentioned your husband, Chris, there, I was actually going to ask you, what's the conversation around the kitchen table around that? And I wonder if that conversation's changed, like, now, in terms of how you now view money, having taken the leap and you're 
two and a half years in, is that about right? About coming to three years in, yeah. Coming to three years in. So is that conversation different in terms of your level of expectation that those what-ifs are going to come true versus your realisation that those what-ifs are just the four in the morning? Do you know what's really interesting, and this is it's a very good question, I don't think I talked to him about it enough. Hmm. I, I, um, I, I'm very... Okay, so Chris and I always joke that we, we almost flip roles. Chris is very emotional, very open, he'll talk about things. I'm from the view, I'm, I'm quite old school, I'm quite kind of like, <laughs> pull your socks up, get on with it, you know, don't show weakness, which is ridiculous. But that's kind of how I've dealt with, with you know, adversity in the past. Yeah. And so I will often sit on my fears about that kind of thing and he has to coax it out of me and he will then reassure me. So mm. I don't think the conversations have changed. I think we are respectful of that fear that I have. And so we make decisions now differently. You know, we don't spend in the same way that we used to. We are a bit more long-term in our thinking. But I don't think that's a bad thing. Well, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. But, uh, I, yeah, I'd love to know that thing of how does your spending habit or how does your view of what you spend change when you become an entrepreneur as opposed to knowing that there's another pay packet? On a very personal level, I mean, so one of the things I I teach and and we teach in our workshops very heavily is about the voice in our head. Yeah. And we talk about how the voice in our head tends to come out when we least want it to, need it to, expect it to, and we use the example of it coming out when we negotiate. I always say our biggest counterparty and most, uh, I don't know, underestimated counterparty is ourself. Um, you know, we are constantly negotiating with ourselves. And I, what I do find now is I am more aware of what I'm spending. Mm. I think more about, well, if I get this, I now can't get this. Or actually, I need to make sure I've got reserves. I don't want to take that much money out of the business, whatever. Um, I probably negotiate more with myself now on a day-to-day basis about, do I really need that? Can I wait? If I yeah. really, you know, and, and yeah. so I have those little mechanisms to help me. I think that's healthy, isn't it? I'd like to think so. Yeah, Although think when healthy. I stand there talking to myself in shops, it maybe <laughs> isn't that great. Natalie Reynolds there. So another person who knows all about money worries and actually puts mine and Natalie's childhood money worries into some kind of sharp and stark perspective is our next guest, Abdu Waiswasalam. So Abdu, I lived with in Uganda when I was doing a kind of grown-up gap year thing back in 2003. Abdu at the time was a little bit younger than me. He was 18. I was about 24, I think. And we were on this program called SPW, Student Partnerships Worldwide, teaching together in a rural primary school. We had about 180 kids in our class regularly, and we were teaching English as well as HIV AIDS education. And it was the kind of thing where it was quite a taboo subject to talk about sex education. And so they kind of had this thing where if you bring in outsiders, it kind of makes it, you know, a bit less taboo and a bit more okay. And so Abdul and I got to know each other really well. He, while we were there, got his A-level results and he became uh, top in his whole district, which from the background that he came from, um, a very small Ugandan village I've actually been to his house um sort of towards the end of the program uh he took us there and I met his parents and stuff from a very very humble background and has gone on to become a hotshot lawyer and he over the years has been over to the UK two or three times it's always just such a pleasure having him come to stay I've been over to visit him obviously uh, in Uganda as well um he runs a little business that sells 
seats in this little yard area for people to come and watch Premier League football. He also sells chickens. He's worked in debt collection. Like he's the guy with like so many side hustles and makes so many deals. And all of it seemingly really driven by the need to put back to his community. So it really feels to me like he has such an interesting uh, set of perspectives on money and success. And also he's someone who I really uh, admire and empathize with and and really kind of um, connect with a lot around sharing a lot of values. We kind of think the same on lots of stuff. And um, it's just always such a pleasure hanging out with him and talking to him. So in this clip, you're going to hear his own view of success and he's someone who as i said you know he um, he was actually over in the uk on this trip because i accompanied him to nottingham trent university to pick up his master's degree in law and so i was basically like his dad for the day and it was a, it's a lot of fun he was he was my son we kind of joked about that at the beginning of the episode as well um but yeah he's someone who's just had this kind of vast success compared to the average ugandan but stays really humble and doesn't brag about it and does everything he can to put money back into his own um, home area and home district. So um, here we are talking about family and success and happiness. And uh, he talks at the end about uh, how uh, God has helped give him a lot of luck. And so he wants to be grateful for that and give back. And he's someone who definitely makes his own luck too. Uh, But yeah, let's get into this here's my conversation with abdu waiswa salam it feels weird to call him by his full name it's just abdu to me so here's abdu eh? and also i think i give credit to my parents they used to tell us when we are young that uh, don't try to be like others be who you are and mm. it's always important to remember who you are in whatever you do that in a way keeps you in check and uh, it reminds you to be responsible <clears throat> and also to take charge of your affairs. But I'm also generally a cautious person because I look at myself. I, I look at uh, uh, from what has happened in my life, I look at myself as a, a, a person who is blessed by God. And so I try to avoid abusing my position in a way that will compromise my potential tomorrow. So um, what, what do you mean? Say what you mean by that. Say, uh, for example, in a way that for example, I, I wouldn't want to say like now in Uganda, concerning what I am now. Uh, I mean, many things I can do. So many things I can uh, choose to be lavish. I can uh, choose to have, for example, many women around me. Mm. I can choose to uh, to drink. I can. I, I mean, I can do so many things yeah but i try to remind myself that i'm abu salam waiswa these are my values I'm, i want to achieve this yeah and i stick to my uh my my, my objective in life so yeah it, it keeps me it keeps me in check it keeps me in check so while we've been talking about money one thing that's interesting that i think would be would feel quite unusual to most people listening to this in the uk and elsewhere so you you earn a lot of money now by the standards of not a lot really <laughs> but by the, by, by the standards of what that small boy in Miyugi uh, would judge you by that right mm-hmm. you've done really well you've worked in big roles in the Ugandan government uh, you're you know you're a hotshot lawyer who tra- travels around the world on planes come on like this is this is not the average Ugandan we're talking to here oh, that is true um, so that is all part of you 
uh, and you know you so you earn comparatively well by Ugandan standards That's and you, true. you know live in Kampala you have your own house and so on um, but you don't but you still don't have a huge disposable income because that money is also you use that money to support lots of other people so let's talk about that mm, that's true you know in Uganda we live in extended families and uh, we have this cultural traditional uh, belief that your success is not just your success success for the whole family mm. so uh, when, when I get money I look at it as money meant for me survive on but also to help people around myself yeah so for example i have 13 sisters and uh, three brothers uh i have many uncles aunties many of these didn't study well many of these some of them actually studied but are jobless or they didn't actually qualify enough so they can't compete for serious jobs and unfortunately many people in the rural villages they still look at having many kids as a uh, it's also pride. Mm. So you find somebody who is jobless, who is just a farmer in the village, having ten kids. Yeah. And many how, how many nieces and nephews do you have? I have so many. Countless. You don't count them. I can't count. Wow. I haven't counted because <laughs> there are so many. So you find every time you go to the village, you receive so many of these people coming to you. My child needs school fees. My child needs this and that. So you have your immediate family, your parents, for example, my dad and ma and mom are still alive. Yeah. The, in the village. So I take those as my primary responsibility mm-hmm. to make them happier than they were in their early days. Uh, so I've taken it on myself to ensure that I make their life relatively comfortable. Mm-hmm. Because for example, like over six years ago I bought for them a solar system. Yeah. So they are able now to have light in rural Uganda. For those who are watching, who are listening to this for the first time, Uganda is not fully covered by electricity. Yeah. So many parts of the country are still dark. So at night, people use kerosene uh, lanterns. Yeah, kerosene lamps. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they're in the dark. So what I did was to buy. Even us when we lived there uh-huh, in uh, two thousand three, in, in our village, there was, was no there was no electricity, and there was also the the well where we would go and get uh-huh, water was. Get water. It was like 20 minutes down down the hill, wasn't it? That's true. So even in my village, we don't have power. So what I did to make my parents' life a little better was Mm. to buy a solar system. Uh, I spent about uh, like $500 on it. And they installed it in the house. So now they're able to have light light in the house. Then about three years ago, I upgraded that solar system it's now strong enough it can even sustain television yeah. so I bought for them a TV mm-hmm. I bought for them a satellite uh, receiver so they're able to watch TV from the comfort of their home and they're living some average life really and then I try to ensure that at least every month I send them money yeah. to be able to, uh, to have most of the basic needs food uh, cooking oil when they fall sick, I'm all, I try as much as possible to take them to the best hospitals. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, that's the other thing with Uganda is that uh, talking about, we're talking about you and not, not often having to operate without a safety net. Before. Mm. And it's the same with healthcare, isn't it? I mean, that just isn't like an, an NHS kind of system like we have here. So if they get sick, then you need money to, you need money to, to take, care of them. take them to good hospitals and stuff. That's true. Yeah. So all that tends to 
eat into your savings mm. but uh, for me i look at it also as a way of uh, getting blessings yeah. i look at uh, success as a result of people's prayer and uh, god is mercy so whenever you do something good for somebody they pray for you to get better and in the end you find yourself actually getting more and more opportunities yeah. through which you get more money and mm. become happy and it's like a virtuous circle right that the more it. you do the more you feel like it attracts more uh-huh. uh, so it's luck to you and things like that that's right yeah. and a believer will know that if you make your parents happy then chances are high that god will also be happy with you will bless you mm. and open you to opportunities i look at myself as a person who has been uh, lacking in many ways and I don't think this has been uh, by mere coincidence. It's because of God's favor. Yeah. And it's only yeah. proper that I'm grateful by also helping my parents, helping my immediate family. So from the small boy from Miyugi, we're going to go to a business superstar from New York, Marie Forleo. She has such a huge following through her YouTube channel, marie.tv as well as, of course, being the founder of B-School. But she was in London promoting her book, Everything is Figureoutable. So in this clip, she's going to tell the story about Everything is Figureoutable. And also she talks about legacy. So again, when we're thinking about happiness and success, I do think there's something really interesting about thinking about what's the thing that you really want to be known for? What's the thing that you want to be remembered for? And make sure you do as much of that as possible. And here Marie's talking about how this book, Everything is Figureoutable, really feels like the most important part of her legacy. My mom is this really interesting character. She's about 5'3". She um, has the tenacity of a bulldog. She looks like June Cleaver, which is this very 1950s character. And uh, she curses like a truck driver. And <laughs> she grew up in the projects of Newark, New Jersey, and learned really by necessity how to stretch a dollar bill around the block okay. five times. Yeah. Uh, one of my fondest memories as a kid was sitting around our kitchen table on Sundays cutting out coupons together because she loved to teach me all the ways that our family could save money. And she also taught me the fact that brands would send you these little free gifts if you saved up your proofs of purchase. Yeah. And one of her most prized possessions was this tiny little Tropicana orange radio that she got from Tropicana Orange Juice for free. So it looked like an orange, had a red and white straw sticking out of the side, that's the antenna. <laughs> and this thing traveled with her everywhere. And so as a kid, I knew I could find her somewhere around the yard or somewhere around the house by listening for the sound of that radio. So one day I come home from school and I'm walking down the street and I hear the radio off in the distance. And I look up and I see my mom perched very precariously on the roof of our two-story house. And I was like, Mom, what are you doing up there? Are you okay? And she yelled down to me. She's like, Ray, I'm fine. The roof had a leak. I called the roofer. He said it would be at least 500 bucks. I said, screw that. I'm going to do it myself. So another day I come home from school and I hear the little radio in the back of the house. And I followed the sound and my mom is in the bathroom. I pushed open the door and there's dust particles in the air and there's pipes sticking out of the wall. It looked like an explosion went off. And I'm like, Mom, are you okay? What's going on? She's like, I'm fine. You know, the tiles had some cracks in them. I didn't want the bathroom to get moldy. So I'm retiling the bathroom. 
So you have to understand, my mom is high school educated. This is the '80s, so this is a pre-internet, pre-YouTube. You can't just look world. up on this stuff on YouTube and exactly. figure out all the instructions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah. so I never knew what I'd find my mom doing, but I knew I could find her by the sound of the radio. Mm. So one day, uh, it was in the fall, and I came home late from school, and it was dark out, and it was a little eerie. And as I approached the house, I could sense that something was different. The house was dark, and it was completely silent, which in an Italian American home is not a good sign. <laughs> and I go. Inside and I hear nothing, and I'm wondering, where is my mom? Where is the sound of the radio? All of a sudden, I hear these clicks and clacks, and they were coming from the kitchen. And I follow that sound, and I see my mom hunched over the kitchen table, which looked like an operating room. There was screwdrivers and um, electrical tape, and then spread out in front of her was about a dozen pieces of a completely dismantled Tropicana orange radio. And I was like, "Mom, are you okay? What's going on? That's your favorite thing." She's like, "Oh, Ray, I'm fine. No big deal. The antenna was a little off, and the tuner was busted, so I'm fixing it." And I stood there, Graham, watching her just work her magic like she always did. And I finally asked the question that I've always should have asked, which was this: "Hey, mom, how do you know how to do so many different things that you've never done before, but nobody's showing you how to do it?" And she put down her screwdriver and she cocked her head to the side and she's like, "Ray, what are you talking about? Nothing in life is that complicated. If you just roll up your sleeves, you get in there and you do it. Everything is figureoutable." And I just stood there, like my jaw hit the floor, and I was like, "Whoa! Like that's <laughs> like the coolest idea ever." And I just kept repeating it to myself, and I really saw her throughout my entire childhood, and my dad as well, just embody this notion. You know, any time there was a problem, it was like, "No problem. We're going to figure it out. We'll find a way to make it through this." And that phrase has really been the single most powerful driving force of my entire life. Like yeah, when I was in high yeah. school, it got me out of a toxic and physically abusive relationship. In college, it helped me get these rare work study positions, which helped me pay for school. I'm the first in my family to go to college. It's helped me land every job I've ever had, from working on Wall Street, publishing at Condé Nast, to selling glow sticks on the floor of mega clubs, to uh, becoming one of the world's first Nike elite dance athletes, despite having no formal dance training, to starting my business at 23 and growing it into what we have today. So I still use that phrase every single day of my life, and I feel like it's the one thing that, if I could really articulate it and put this idea into words, that could possibly help the most people out of everything that I've done. That's like your legacy is to really absolutely make, make that phrase something that people really resonate with and, and use and use yeah. for sure. You know, I was like struggle. I'm not uh, the type of writer who finds it really easy. I find it really challenging and difficult, and especially doing it at the same time as running the business yeah. and keeping the show going. I and know so a bit about that. you know a little, a lot about that, Graham. <laughs> Smaller business than yours, I have to say, but, but uh, it doesn't matter. Like when you're growing something, yeah. when you have all these things in motion, also fitting in a book project, which is huge. It, mm, it's a yeah. lot. And I was uh, struggling to write the manuscript one day at a restaurant in New York, and I ran into my friend Toby, who's the CEO of Shopify. And we've known each other for a bit, and he's like, what are you working on? And I told him about the book. And he's like, Ray, why are you writing a book? Like, the business is fine, it's growing, your show's doing great, like, why are you taking on this project? And I told him, I said, Toby, this is the honest truth. If I were to walk out of here and get hit by a bus tomorrow, this is the one idea I'd want to leave behind. And if I can do a good job articulating all of the components of it, then I can kind of ride off to my next cosmic adventure feeling very satisfied <laughs> with nice. my time here on Earth. Yeah, so. and obviously here on Beyond Busy, we're all about kind of thinking about purpose and what, how you define success. And yes. that feels like a really clear uh, and compelling yes. um, sort of definition of your success, right? Like this is the thing that above all else I want to get through to people and, and, and to leave behind yes. at, at some point as well. 
Marie Forleo there, the author of Everything is Figure Outable and the founder of B-School. So we've got, got just a couple more conversations that I want to share with you before we get to the end of this very special Beyond Busy 100 series. And so it's really getting into, I guess, the brass tacks of what do I really want to leave you with as part of this? What are the things that have most impacted me? And this next one really fits into that category. This is Carl Honoré. Carl's probably best known for his TED Talk in praise of slow and the book of the same name. And when I met him at his house in Battersea, he had just released another book called The Slow Fix. Now, I think, you know, going into this conversation, there was probably a bit of discussion between us about, well, hang on, like Graham's the productivity ninja guy. Isn't he going to be all about fast, fast, fast? And I think, you know, anyone who knows my work will see beyond that. And, you know, I always um, say that when I'm defining productivity, it's about making space for what matters. And what matters usually is clear thinking and space. And, you know, for me, the idea of being considered and slow with things is actually a really important component to making those things good, making those things successful and doing things in the right kind of way. And I think if we're going to get beyond busy, then the opposite of busy is not being idle. And the opposite of busy is not having uh, absolutely nothing to do. The opposite of being busy is to be considered and deliberate and maybe a bit slower than we are now you know busy is by its nature going faster on the treadmill and you know i think we can look at productivity as a thing that just makes us go faster on the treadmill or we can look at productivity in a different way which is how do i do less and do the things that really satisfy me and make an impact rather than just doing more 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 of the things that don't really matter so that said um i just want to get into a couple of the clips from the conversation with Carl. Um, Carl was just such great company, uh, very inspiring in terms of how he writes his books and his whole methodology around how he works. And, um, you know, I de definitely just learned a lot from Carl just from that hour and have kept in touch a little bit since. So uh, let's go into this. We're going to talk um, in this about his role going into companies. And at the beginning here, we're talking about whether he finds it difficult and whether the idea of telling companies to slow down is a difficult, slightly alien message to walk through the door with. More like it's like, you know, it feels like it's more, it's more chaos than conspiracy in a lot of those things. Those things do kind of develop on their own. But it feels like you have to be much more planned if you're going to rein back from that or question that, that, that culture that, that's very pervasive and do something different. So, like, is that something you found... A difficult message when you go into businesses, you know, to to talk to people about slow problem solving and you know and and slow fix solutions to things rather than quick fix. Is that is that a difficult message for people? Or? I think I think that it still is a difficult message. I think it's sometimes difficult to get in the door because they'll, all it takes is one person who's hostile to the idea or just can't get his or her head around it and yeah. then you don't you don't get in front of the people who who may be yearning for it on right, the inside of, of the course, business yeah, yeah. but if you do get in the in the door and i do get in the door uh, i find that even the people who start out skeptical in the session by the end are saying you know what that that touched me and that made sense to me on an intellectual level and i can get it, it it's not something i can necessarily wave a wand and completely slowify my life tomorrow or change this whole company but this makes sense and and for me that's already a triumph if you've got somebody who came in thinking oh 
I don't, this, ugh, this is silly, right? This slow thing. I can't slow down. I, I need to go faster, right? Yeah. And they go away thinking, hmm, actually a bit of judicious good slow might allow me to be more productive, more creative and actually move more quickly. Yeah. So maybe just give, just give us a couple of examples of either within businesses or just within people's own lives. Like what are those judicious uh, uses of good slow that can really make a difference? Well, there's one study that, um, looks at how people make decisions in the workplace that are connected to problem solving. And they found that when confronted with a difficult, tangled problem in, at work, if you take uh, two minutes to, to, to ponder and think it over just, and to reflect on it, uh, I mean, just two minutes, not two days or hours or even, two, you know, uh, just two minutes, that it can allow you to short circuit and get past some of those uh, natural biases that the brain has, you know, the confirmation bias, the Einstein effect, all those things that push us towards quick fixes, old solutions we've already done, low-hanging fruit, and allow us to push through that stuff and come out the other side yeah. with something fresher, something newer, and often something better. And that's not a huge investment of time, right? It's just, it's, it's a yeah, little, it's a small tweak. Counterintuitively, I mean, two minutes feels like not very much time at all. Like, yeah. It feels quite quick, but yeah, actually... You think about a lot of the decisions that people make, the number of seconds that people take when they're reading an email to then responding. To yeah. It. Two minutes is it's an acre of time in that sense. In most modern workplaces, yeah. you walk in now, how often do you see somebody just sit there and think for two minutes? Yeah. And that so, programs your mind to just, yeah. you know, keep going towards the finish line the whole time. And you, so. you're, you, it's, it's almost like a hard wiring. And to unpick that takes time. Yeah. It takes patience. I love that thing of just writing down someone's name like Bill Gates. It's mm -hmm. just a really nice way of having Rommel's. The one I do quite a lot is, uh, so I work uh, most often from a uh, garden office at the bottom of my garden, <laughs> a.k.a. the shed, I call it. <laughs> but, uh, so I'll be like, you know, in the shed and working on something. And if I'm really feeling like, okay, I need that, that sort of time out or time to breathe or whatever, I'll make sure I go and have a cup of tea, but it's me that puts the kettle on and it's kind of me that has to go. And so often I'll make tea for the other people at that moment because it's like, okay, now that's just going to give me the five minutes to check out. And, you know, while the, while the kettle's boiling, it gives you that time to, you know, do the breathing yeah. or just take that perspective and think. Well, about I, that's what you're putting your finger on there is something I often talk about and try and put into practice, which is rituals, right? Mm, I mean, rituals yeah. by their very nature slow us down. I mean, you don't accelerate the tea ritual. It would just yeah, be yeah, preposterous, yeah. right? Or, you know, so, and I think that embedding rituals in your schedule can be a mm. useful break on that fight-or-flight panic mode. Yeah, and uh, I guess like yoga is another way of thinking about it. It's, it like yeah. in some ways, you can think about it as a ritual, right? Like it, you do certain movements and you have a certain order yeah. to that and a rhythm to that. And, and it almost becomes... Ritual, yeah. you, you carve out those neural pathways. You get used to it. Mm. And it's just, again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier on, that you to slow down is a process. It takes time. You know, you, you've, it's almost like a practice. You've got to work it yeah. in. And you, it's a bit like being an alcoholic. You know, a recovering alcoholic is like a recovering speedaholic. You could always fall off the wagon, right? You need to be, you need to be aware, alert, yeah. and, and, and keep making an effort, right? Mm. And, and that ritual thing, I was just thinking, actually, I was just thinking it today, that when I was struggling to come away from my desk and just take a few minutes or a couple of minutes to walk around, I used to see uh, people s smoking because of course smokers have to leave their desk now yeah. and go and be outside and I, I remember thinking and this is how crazy I'd got at one point I remember thinking maybe I should take up smoking because <laughs> that would give yeah. me a reason to you know uh, I'd be forced to go away I, thankfully I did not take up smoking but I think of, sometimes think of it in the back of my mind as my smoking break I just go for a little walk out, out of the office I'm in now it's not a very beautiful or salubrious corner of London 
but you know, I have a little walk around, I come back, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. it makes a big difference. Carl Honoré there, author of In Praise of Slow, amongst other things. We're on to the final one, and this is the final clip. And the one I'm going to share to round things off is the wonderful Jess Foster Q. She's one of my favorite comedians. If you listen to the Guilty Feminist podcast, you'll know her from there. She's done loads of stuff on TV. And if you ever get the chance to check out her show, The Silence of the Nans, it is just wonderful. This really masterful piece of storytelling. It's basically the story of her getting booked to be one of the comedians on a cruise when the kind of comedy she does is just not suitable for a cruise. <laughs> and so it's just an hour about that. And it's absolutely brilliant. I'm sure it's on, you know, Amazon Prime or one of those, uh, you know, sort of places where you'll find a lot of stand up uh, shows. But yeah, The Silence of the Nans, if you ever get a chance to see that is just brilliant. Um, so yeah she's she's an amazing comedian we met up in Brighton she had an Edinburgh preview show to do and we did a podcast doubleheader so I was on her podcast hoovering which was a lot of fun talking about my favorite food uh, bits and pieces and a few of the tips and tricks obviously from how to have the energy uh, my book with Colette Hennigan but also I then recorded her for Beyond Busy and she told this incredible story which um, as you're going to hear at the end, uh, sparked my own particular light bulb, mo- light bulb moment. So this is uh, Jess Foster Q. It's kind of Jess Foster Q and me as well. Um, but yeah, uh, in conversation with Jess Foster Q at Platform 9 in Brighton. So when my, um, my dad used to work for um, Merritt and Shond on Champagne for like 15 years when I was a kid and uh, he got made redundant in my late teens, early 20s, um, early 20s, and he gave me a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon 1983, which is the year I was born, which obviously is and feels very special, and I was like, well, uh, I need to save that for a really big deal. I can't just drink that for any old thing. Um, and I, uh, I th- initially I thought, I will, as I started stand-up, I thought, I'll oh, drink it when I get my first agent and then I got my first agent but it didn't sort of quite feel like a big enough deal I thought I'll um, drink it when I've done my first Edinburgh Fringe didn't again it went fine went good went went really good came out of it with a few bits and bobs going on that weren't before but didn't quite feel like enough and then uh, I think a decade went by maybe less uh (laughs) And I hadn't drunk it because every single thing I'd said would be a good enough reason to drink it didn't feel good enough in the moment because I was already too fixated on what was coming next. Um, and then shortly after my son was born, um, I was just having a catch up with some of my girlfriends who I know like champagne and I brought it round and we tanked it for no reason at all. Nice. It was one of the loveliest <laughs> feelings ever. And it had already gone a bit brown. It was absolutely delicious, <laughs> but it was about time we drank it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it was, and I didn't feel sad. Uh, I stored it properly, but yeah. it depends on the year. Some of them age better than others, but champagne right. doesn't age like wine. You're not, you're not okay. supposed to keep it forever and ever. Oh, right, okay. So, yeah. so there is like a bell curve where yeah. it will go the other end. And, and it was it was definitely on the way down. It wasn't yeah. disgusting. It was still delicious. It yeah. was still fucking delicious. But I've no regrets, you know, and I and it, and it felt like a bit, a bit of a wake-up call. To, like you're, you're waiting to be happy. You're waiting to be successful. Mm. Same thing, you know, as people who who think they'll be happy when they're thin or they think they'll be happy when oh, I don't 
know, when they've got kids or when yeah. they've, you know, found love or whatever. I think if you're waiting to be happy, it's it's really, that's not how to be happy. And so it's also like a kind of two fingers up to to just that idea of, of sort of always chasing the next carrot, right? Yeah. And I think we have this natural, like, human psychology of, like, never wanting to settle and never never wanting to really admit to ourselves that, like, oh, we've, we've arrived and this is good enough. Yeah. You know, we're always like, what's the next destination? And we want to, want to carry on. I had a similar thing, which was, um, which I've just thought of now. I totally didn't yeah. ask you that so that I can, like... Yeah, yeah, I love it. Share my thing. But it just made me think of, I used to have this thing... I used to always write like a sort of New Year's plan, not necessarily like New Year's resolutions, but like what do I want to get from the year? And I just write down a few things. And I remember one year I wrote down, um, I want to have enough money that I feel secure in my job and my business that I can go and do my work and I can wear my brown corduroy trousers. Right? <laughs> and I used to just wear cords all the time, right? Yeah. And I still do a lot in the, in the winter months. But like the the thing was, I was always doing like these keynote gigs and, and other other you know uh, sort of gigs within businesses, and I'd always have to put the suit on, yeah, right. And it was like my my kind of armor of like mm-hmm. I'm one of you, I'm I'm going to fit in here and all that. And then one day, I just sort of had this thing of um, Graham, just wear the cords, it's fine. Yeah, and I think there might have been a little part of the briefing which was like oh it's kind of you know you can be casual and whatever and so I was maybe coaxed there a little bit but then I did it once and I wore the corduroy trousers and I did this talk and it went really well it kind of felt like it had gone better than the ones I've done before and then since then I've just gone I can just say that that's you know and I don't I never I'd never put a label on how much money I needed or whatever I it was just I needed enough money to be able to feel secure enough to be able to yeah, put her trousers and be myself, and it was like this huge moment of like, I can actually just be myself now, and it's yeah, fun. yeah, and yeah, that was a big thing. And I, I remember listening to that thing about the champagne, and I hadn't even put the two things together. Yeah, yeah, that's you're waiting that's to be happy, you're waiting to be successful. Just be happy, just be successful now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So there you go, the brilliant Jess Foster Q, and that brings an end to this part three episode about happiness and success and to our three-part series so that's beyond busy we're 100 episodes old i'm so proud of that milestone it just feels big and it means that there's well over 100 hours of conversations with interesting characters so i feel like i've just learned a lot as you heard from that last clip there I want to just thank a few people before we finish. So um, in no particular order, but when I first started out, I didn't really have a clue about how to record and I wanted to make sure that we were recording in the best possible audio quality. And my best mate, Nathan Thomas, he is an acoustic engineer. He basically sent me one day, just like the perfect Amazon, uh, you know, uh, box, basically just, you know, checkout thing for me to just check out and pay for and and I would get all the right stuff. And so I've just been using that equipment ever since. So um, if ever you want to start a podcast, then what you need to do is just find your friend who's an acoustic engineer. Um, and then you don't have to go on a course about it and, you know, learn about it and stuff. So, so thanks, Nathan, for hooking me up with all the right gear. Um, thanks also to Mark Stebbin, who, as well as being... Um, the host of the podcast through his platform Podient uh, and being my producer on the show who literally edits every episode and adds all my intros and outros and all the little jingles and stuff has just been a huge resource in terms of helping me with uh, having the right systems in place 
um, helping me to think about what I wanted the show to actually be like and sound like. Um, and just all around just being such a good advisor as a producer as well. So thank you, Mark. I want to also thank the Think Productive team, in particular in the early days of the podcast, Caitlin, who is doing a lot of the work on helping us to promote the episodes. Uh, obviously, Elena and Jess and the current team. Uh, and also Think Productive is our sponsor for the show. So we decided we didn't really want to have loads of ads interrupting everywhere. And seeing as Think Productive pays for it, we just kind of made Think Productive the, the default sponsor for the show. So if you're interested in productivity workshops and coaching, just go to thinkproductive.com and find out more. And that's it. That's the ad, right? So like, yeah, I just find that much less obtrusive than um, a lot of the podcasts I listen to. I just get so annoyed at all the adverts, but there you go. Uh, I want to thank my current assistant team, uh, in particular, Emily, who in terms of the pre-production of the show, she does briefings for all the guests. Um, she's doing all the booking people in and all of the logistics around that, which is a, just a huge job in itself. Uh, and also Riz, who's been doing a lot of the promotion around episodes in recent times and has also been the person editing these together. So I want to thank you, Riz, for all of your hard work on Beyond Busy 100. Um, just the spreadsheet she sent me with all the different guests and the breakdown of it and stuff. Um, we'd sort of had a couple of calls and then suddenly I got this huge uh, spreadsheet through. So just loads and loads of really detailed quality work. So thank you, Riz, for pulling all of this together uh, in just a really remarkable way. And I could not have done this without you. Um, I want to thank all of the guests um it sounds like a really obvious thing to say but all those people who've given up their time and uh also just opened up with really interesting uh perspectives on our three main topics of productivity and work-life balance and happiness um i obviously couldn't have done this podcast without having good guests and i also couldn't have kept going with this without good listeners i mean i sort of do this in my shed and it kind of feels sometimes like i'm talking to myself and then i get lovely emails back from people saying hey um, really resonated with that episode or hey you should get this person on and those emails really mean a lot so if you ever want to reach out uh, then just drop me a line at graham at thinkproductive.co.uk and i would love to hear from you a couple of links before we finish so if you want links to all of the previous episodes the other two parts of this special three-part series and of course all the other 99 it's all at getbeyondbusy.com and uh, if you want more from me, you can find out what I'm doing at grahamalcott.com. I also have this rev up for the week email that goes out every Sunday. So just go to grahamalcott.com and then just fill in the little uh, form on the homepage there and that'll sign you up to my mailing list. And as I mentioned before, Think Productive is just at thinkproductive.com and it's thinkproductive.co.uk if you're here in the UK. Um, if you like this podcast and you want to support us and you don't want to bring us into your team uh, you don't have a budget for training and coaching and productivity and all that stuff that we do um, then one of the ways you can support me and my work is just to go and buy copies of my books so my books are out on amazon they're also on bookshop.org and we'll put some links to those in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com uh, most notably how to be a productivity ninja uh, most recently how to have the energy and upcoming how to fix meetings so um, if you want to just uh, show some support for Beyond Busy, but you don't have the budget to bring uh, Think Productive into your company, then just go and buy some books. That would really help me out. And uh, obviously just leave reviews for the books, leave reviews for the podcasts. That helps too. So thank you for being here. I hope you have enjoyed this look back through the previous episodes. I've loved putting it together. It, it just feels like I've been reminded of so many good lessons uh, through doing it. And we'll be back on Thursday with 
episode 101 we're back to the normal episodes as of now so uh see you in a couple of days time basically and until then as always take care and bye for now Bye.